If you'll turn in your Bibles to John chapter 14 as we return to our series through the, uh, what has historically been known as the Upper Room Discourse. John 14, verses 15 through 31. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day you will know that I am in the Father, that I am in my Father and you in me and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not the world? Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my Father will love him. And we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I am going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. The word of the Lord. We're thankful for your word of God, which is our trust. We trust not in man. We trust in the name of our Lord. And we pray that um, throughout the decades now from this very pulpit, um, broken vessels have proclaimed your word. And, and despite our weakness, despite our sin, despite our frailty, your word keeps working. Your spirit keeps moving. And so we pray that you would do that again Lord, um, when I am weak, you are strong. And so I pray you would be strong this morning and use your word to accomplish your great purposes for the glory of the Son and the good of the saints who have gathered together, hungry to hear from their God this morning. Speak to them, we pray. Amen. Okay, after a couple of weeks off, and thank you, Will, for uh, the past couple of weeks. Really blessed our, our, our congregation. Uh, we return to John 14 to pick up um, a long and honestly difficult passage to understand. Uh, for those of you who are familiar with uh, my style of preaching, you know that I don't typically take up a passage as long as this one. It's really difficult for me. But to be honest with you, as I studied it this week, uh, there's no way to break this down any further and be faithful to the text. Uh, because 15 through 31 is one long, meandering uh, promise from Jesus that has to be considered as a whole. At first, the passage seems to be all over the place. You may have thought that as I was reading it. But 
uh, when you study it, there are two major themes that emerge. One of them I'm going to pick up this week. The other I will pick up next week. So we're going to spend two weeks on this longer passage um, looking at the two major themes of the passage. Now the two themes are introduced in verses 15 and 16. He prefaces everything and says, if you love me, and he says this, you will keep my commandments and I will ask the Father. And then he moves on with some more promise. And that pattern is essentially repeated throughout the whole passage, the whole section here. If you love me, you will do something and I will do something. That's the two themes. If you love Jesus, then it necessarily will lead to something that you do and it necessarily will lead to something that Jesus does. So this week, we're going to focus on the first half of that, the first theme. If you love Jesus, you will. And the next week, we will look at what Jesus does for us, for those who love him. Today, I want to concentrate, um, the way I'm going to do is concentrate on a statement that Jesus repeats four times in this passage. You might have picked up on it as I read through it. 15, 21, 23, and 24. Those verses, Jesus is saying essentially the same thing in different ways, slightly different ways. But there are three words that he uses in each of those verses, in each of those statements that get to the heart of the message that he is trying to convey. And so what I want to simply do this morning is build my three points around each of those words. What does it mean to love Jesus? To answer that question, we're going to look at the significance of the word love, the significance of the word keep, that's in all three of those, all four of those, and then the significance of the word my, as in my commandments. We'll look at each of those, and I think it will become clear what Jesus means when he says, if you love me. Let's start with the word love, significance of the word love. Verse 15, if you love me, verse 21 He it is who loves me. Verse 23, if anyone loves me. Verse 24, whoever does not. He's 24 is the negative restatement of everything. Whoever does not love me. Now again, worded slightly differently, but this is one consistency here. Jesus is interested in our love. And I want to remind us how unique that is. We Christians take it for granted that we speak of our God with the language of love. But you need to know that that is unique. Traditional religious concepts speak of God or gods with exclusively detached, exalted language, transcendent, reverent verbiage. We praise God, we we honor God, we worship God, we serve God, we submit to God, we obey God and all these things. And of course, the Christian Gospel, these are true within the Christian faith. We praise Jesus, we honor Jesus, we serve Jesus, we submit to Jesus, we revere Jesus. But that's not what Jesus is singling out here. He wants to know whether we love him. And that's unique. When Jesus was asked, what is the greatest commandment? He answered that question with the language of love. Love God, love neighbor. When Paul sums up the ethics of Jesus He says the greatest of these is love. Even in the Old Testament, which people maybe tend to think of a different 
feel of a God, maybe more of that traditional, transcendent, exalted, holy, reverent vision of religion. The Old Testament speaks this way. It was in our reading this morning. You shall love the Lord your God. If you read the Psalms of the Old Testament, some of them are, they they seem like love letters to Yahweh. So it is clear in Scripture that love is the highest aim, and that's very different. What we do is we retain the classic conceptions of God. Worship, adoration, submission, reverence, obedience, awe. We retain all that, but we do them all as those who are in love with our God. And what, his, and what this speaks to is that distinct Christian concept of God and man in relationship. As not this detached being to whom we have nothing in common, but as a relationship to whom we are in love. In our passage, Jesus isn't after adherers to a religion. He is after people who love a relationship. He wants to know about their love because love is the language of relationship. Many of you know I just got back from overseas, and one of the things that I find so interesting about the British culture is their obsession with the royal family. It's it's insane, especially now. The the, the new uh, baby was coming while I was there, and everybody's in a frenzy. They admire the crown. They honor the crown. They revere the crown. They're loyal to the crown. You can make a case that they idolize the crown. They worship the crown. They're obsessed. And that's a good way to conceptualize normal religious devotion. The Brits relate to the royal family the way we typically think religious people relate to their God. But that's not what we see here from Jesus. Jesus is using language that Prince Louis, who was born this week, will be using. This is how he'll grow up approaching the crown. He will say to William and Kate and his grandmother, Queen Elizabeth, he will say, I love you. Now, he'll, of course, submit to them and honor and revere them as any child should, but it's just different because all of that will be born out of relational love. And that's what Jesus is after here. He's after your love. Above all else, he wants to know, do you love Jesus? But we still haven't even answered the question of what does that mean before we can answer, do I love Jesus? We probably need to know what does that mean to love Jesus? Well, let's consider the next word that shows up in each of these verses. The significance of the word keep. Verse 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Verse 21. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. Verse 23. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. Verse 24. Whoever does not, again, in the negative, whoever does not love me does not keep my words. So what Jesus does here is he defines love as keeping or love as action. If you love him, you will obey him. You will keep his commandments. It's very easy to say, I love Jesus. Very easy to say that. Many do, in fact. Still in America, 70% would say they love Jesus. Identify themselves in that way. It's easy to say, but who can know if it's true, right? And love seems so nebulous that how can it even be defined or discerned or even quantified? How do I know if I love? Well, Jesus has an easy answer to that. Easy answer to that. Obedience. People 
who love Jesus obey Jesus. It is not our obedience that secures the love of Jesus, a relationship with Jesus. That happens by grace alone through faith alone. But it is our obedience that authenticates our relationship with Jesus, that authenticates our love. Now, this is very important for us to hear because it is my experience that in our tribe, specifically evangelical Christians, we tend to look at one of two things to discern love. How do I know what love for Jesus looks like? We tend to look at two things, and neither of them are what Jesus singles out here. Instead of obedience, what we tend to look at is the mind and emotions to discern love. There are some who say, of course I love Jesus. Look how much I know about Jesus. Mind. Do you know how many Bible studies I've been in about Jesus? Do you know how many books I've read about Jesus? Do you know how many sermons I've listened to about Jesus? Do you know how many, you know, precise my theology is about Jesus? How could someone know so much about Jesus and not love Jesus? And I would say, well, that's easy. We could start with the devil, if you'd like. The devil has a far greater theology than anybody here. He could teach a really good Sunday school class. But he does not love Jesus. Friends, I'm speaking very candidly here on purpose. It has been my experience that in our tradition, and I mean ours, the PCA, is filled with people who know a lot about Jesus and don't love Jesus. Because they know about him, but they're not obeying him. This is way too common in our tradition. Conversely, on the other side, are those who look toward their emotions, not their mind, but their emotions to discern, do I love Jesus? This is, I would say, the overreaction. Perhaps the younger ones in the crowd will relate to this a little bit more, but the pendulum has swung. Oh, millennials, you're endless maddening, introspective game, constantly trying to discern whether you feel like you have a relationship with Jesus. Whether your love feels authentic. And when you have an emotional high, you feel so assured. And when your emotions run dry, you feel like such a hypocrite and you condemn yourself. And so your relationship with Jesus becomes this constant pursuit of the next emotional fix so that you can know for sure that you actually do love Jesus and have a relationship with him. What a terribly fickle way to define love. Love defined by emotions is treacherous. And thankfully, Jesus doesn't define it this way. Thankfully to those of us who don't have all the knowledge, he doesn't define love as knowledge. Thankfully to those of us who don't have the emotional highs, he doesn't define it that way. He doesn't define it by what we know. He doesn't define it by what we feel. He defines it by what we do. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. People, don't overcomplicate this. Love is doing what he tells you to do. I'll steal an illustration from uh, Francis Chan. It's the concept. I'm I'm making it my own here. Um, Suppose I tell my son, uh, tell one of my sons, I I need you to go make your bed. Goes away for a while, comes back. Uh, Let me tell you how this scenario will play out if he did it the way many in our churches do it today. 
those who define love by knowledge, mind. Goes away, comes back, says, Dad, I want you to know I love you. I'm going to prove how much I love you. I love you so much that I have been thinking for hours about what you told me to do. I've memorized it. I've studied it. I can even translate, go make your bed into Greek. <laughs> I've, decided to form a, uh, I've def- decided to form a study. We're going to be at Starbucks in the morning. And we're going to sit around and talk about what it means to make your bed. Don't you see how much I love you? That's how much I love you. Or I could see it perhaps happening in this way. Dad, I want you to know how much I love you. I really do. When you looked me in the eyes and said, go make your bed, I felt so cared for. I felt so loved. That you, my father, would talk to me, your son. I just get emotional thinking about it. I got my guitar out. I wrote a song (laughs) called Oh Oh Beautiful Bed Making. (laughs) Took a picture of my bed. I put it on Instagram. Perfect filter, most inspiring quote about discovering the beauty and the messiness of a bed. That's how much I love you. There is the other option. You can make the bed. If you love me, I don't need you to study it. I don't need you to feel it. I need you to do it. Do you love Jesus? Instead, thank you. Out of the mouth of babes. Instead of asking yourself what you know about him, instead of asking yourself what you feel about him, How about you ask yourself whether this day you have done one thing that you didn't want to do, but you did it because he said do it. Or whether you didn't do one thing that you wanted to do, but you didn't do it because he told you don't do that. It is simply absurd to say I love Jesus and then not do what he tells me to do. So what is Jesus telling you to do? Keep my commandments. Okay, well, what's that? That's actually an important question to ask and one that is easily misunderstood as well. And this leads us to the third word here, that all-important word, my commandments. Once more, verse 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Verse 21. Whoever has my commandments, you will keep them. And keeps them, it is he who loves me. Verse 23, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. Verse 24, whoever does not love me does not keep my words. So at times he uses my commandments, at times he uses my words, but what is consistent is the word my. We keep his commandments, we keep his words. And you might say, well, that's obvious, of course. But it's not as obvious as you might think. It really isn't. Oftentimes what we do is we invent commandments and then we canonize them as if they were the very commands of Jesus. But they're not his commands, they're our commands that we're treating like his commands. I'll give you another example from my trip last week. The Free Church of Scotland takes the Sabbath very seriously. And honestly, we could learn a lot from them in the way that they approach the Sabbath. In so many ways, it's beautiful. But in their zeal to honor the Sabbath, they have also added to the Sabbath. 
So I was talking to someone who grew up in the free church, Scotland, and they told me their whole life they would have to rush, no matter what they were doing from childhood through teenage years, they would have, no matter what they were doing on a Saturday night, they would have to rush to make sure home, they were home by the strike of midnight. Because as soon as Sunday begins, you are not to be doing any worldly activities. Now, Jesus didn't tell them to do that. But the practices have become so ingrained that it was as if Jesus told them to do that. And if they did it, they felt like they were obeying Jesus, which is very problematic. And if they didn't do that, they felt like they were disobeying Jesus, which is even more problematic. All the while, Jesus was saying, "Uh, that's your command, not mine. Which is exactly what he said to the Pharisees who were doing the same thing with the Sabbath when he was there. And of course, it's not just them off their culture. Every, every, every culture of Christianity does this. We have our own commands that we have added. Some of you grew up in just good old-fashioned Bible Belt fundamentalism, where people who love Jesus are just those who don't drink, dance, smoke, chew, associate with those who do. It's not what we do. Could be many things, a certain theology that you say to love Jesus means that this is your theological persuasion. It could be a certain worship style. Those who love Jesus worship this way. It could be a certain political party. Those who love Jesus vote a certain way. And on and on the list goes of commands that are ours, but we treat like they're Jesus's. But they're not his, and he himself would break most of them. So we need to be very careful what we conceptualize as obedience. We talk a lot, rightly so, about we dare not take away from the word of God. And we, so we look at progressive traditions and we say, you can't just take the commands and throw them out because they don't work with your culture. Fair. But our tradition needs to hear, but you can't add to the word of God. You can't add to what Jesus said. And that's what we need to hear. Jesus says, if you love me, you will obey my commands. Okay, so what are his commands? <laughs> well, the answer is twofold. The first is really simple. It's scripture, okay? Uh, scripture itself. Jesus' commands are the infallible word of God because Jesus is the word of God incarnate. He spoke on his own authority because he viewed himself as the authority of the word of God. He wasn't a prophet. He is the author of it. So we can look at all of scripture and say, this is Jesus talking to me, Okay. Um, In fact, he says, uh, these are not my words, this is my Father's word, and there's this Trinitarian view of of commands here. So we can say just Scripture, and what that allows us to do is we can say, yes, yes, of course, there are commands in Scripture that are clear as could be. Start with the Ten Commandments, it's just clear as could be. If you commit adultery, you are not keeping the commands of Jesus, or whatever, whatever you want to point out as clear as day. So, of course, the scripture gives us clarity and some obvious commands, but there's more here than that. There really is. You know what is so unique about the commands of Jesus in the Gospels when you study his life is how specific they are to each person's story, context, idols, struggles, fears, insecurities. Go look at how he interacts with everybody. Jesus Jesus just has this way of uniquely pressing in on obedience. He has a command for the Pharisee Nicodemus. He has a command for the adulterous woman at the well. He has a command 
to the unjust tax collector, that's different from the command to the prideful Peter, that's different from the command to the greedy, rich, young ruler. He just has a way about him, doesn't he? To uniquely speak to our issues and our struggles, saying, if you love me, you will obey here. And he presses in on our idol. He presses in on our struggles. He says to the rich young ruler, if you love me, you will sell everything you have and give it away. He doesn't say it to anybody else except this greedy man in love with his riches. If you love me, you will, and he has a unique application for everyone. And so, yes, there is scripture that outlines the commands of Jesus, but there are unique costs of love that he is demanding from each of us according to our unique struggles and stories. He, he has a, if you, Robert, love me, you will do this, or you will stop doing this. He has that for me, and he has that for you. To which you might say, well, how do we know what that is? Jesus isn't here to tell me what he wants from me. Yeah, he is. He absolutely is. He is more present now than he was in the Gospels. Because he's not in front of you talking to you. He's inside of you talking. That's where we're heading next week. That's where Jesus is. He's setting it all up for the coming of the Spirit. He will expound on the ministry of the Holy Spirit, the Helper. And, and, and we'll get to that next week. We'll talk about that next week. We'll pack it next week. But this week, I'm just going to know that it's true and just assume that it's true. I am so confident in the presence of the Holy Spirit inside of those of you who love Jesus that you know exactly what he's telling you to do. Or you know exactly what he's telling you to stop doing. You know, that's how faithful his spirit is. He's telling you, he's convicting you, he's unsettling you, he's hounding you. He's saying, if you love me, you will do this. He's saying to you, I need you to do this. Or I need you to stop doing this. And you, lover of Jesus, know exactly what he's asking of you. That's how powerful I believe the spirit is. This happened for Abby and I, we, uh, a week and a half ago, we went on a, Overnight retreat called The Journey of Generosity. I highly recommend it. Um, one of our passions in leadership this year is the generosity of our congregation. Our prayer is that everybody who calls TCPC home would be a tither to our church, um, which is going to require um, sacrificial generosity. Um, but we said, you know, we're, we're the chief repenters. We've got to go first. So the pastors and elders are retreating to do this, these retreats first, and deacons are doing these retreats first. And so Abby and I were first up, and we went away with some elders and spouses to this basically 24-hour uh, discipleship intensive on our finances, our money, our generosity, and so forth. And um, we're coming back deeply convicted, I'm deeply convicted, and I prayed, and I've got some applications that I'm scared to say because I don't want them coming out of my mouth because then i got to do it. And I remember thinking, you know, we don't have more room, God. We're tithing to the church. We're giving above our tithe to, to, to ministries and supporting, and there's, there's, there's no more room. And Abby and I both felt, you're going to have to get crazy. You're going to have to get radical. And he pressed in. 
And, and you know what? Can I be honest with you? I don't want to do it. I really don't. But I'm going to do it. Because I love Jesus. In my heart of heart, I, I love Jesus. So this is not a, I'm the hero of my own story here. I don't want to do this. But I'm going to do it. Because I love Jesus. And he will be faithful. What about you? What about you? What is Jesus by his spirit saying? This is my command for you. If you love him, then friend, you need to obey him. But maybe you don't love him. There's that possibility. Maybe you've never loved him. Maybe you've never wanted to do what he commands. Maybe you're just happy doing whatever you want. Or maybe you have loved him, but you've grown weary of loving him. You've grown weary of the demands of Christ's love. Maybe you love him, but your love has grown cold and all that is left is a faint, smoldering flicker of love. And you fear you just don't have it in you anymore to love and obey Jesus. Well, to those of you who have no love for Jesus, to those of you who need their love inflamed, I proclaim to you the one and only thing that evokes love for Jesus, Jesus' love for you. We love because he first loved us. Verse 31, and we're done. He says, listen, my time's up. I'm not going to be able to talk to you much longer. The uh, ruler of this world's about to get me. This is how he explains it, though, in verse 31. But I do as the Father has commanded me so that the world may know that I love the Father. Do you see the same reasoning there? Do you see what he's saying? He's saying, I love the Father. I love the Father, and to prove it, I'm going to do what he has commanded me to do. I will do his will. I will do what he told me to do because I love him and love is obedience. And what has the father commanded? It is the will of the Lord to crush him. The father has commanded the suffering of the son because he loves sinners and he needs a propitiation. And so he says to the son, will you do this? And the son says, father, I love you, I will. I will obey the Son, inflamed with love for the Father, does what the Father asks. The Son obediently bears the infinite cost of the cross. Yes, because He loves you, but I'm telling you more so because He loves the Father. Isn't He awesome? Don't you love Him? Don't you love Him for what He has done? Well, if you love Him, then obey Him. Let me pray. Our Father, inflame our hearts with love that we might obey. We come now to your table of love, your table of obedient sacrifice. We pray that you would so fill our hearts and overwhelm us with your love that we would count it honor, joy, delight to do what you have commanded us to do. Help us to obey, Jesus. Fill us with your love. We love because you love first. So now first love us that we might love you well and obey. Through Christ we pray.